Cape Town. I must say, Cape Town was all we expected and more. So much more. She seemed to have so much poise for a city so far from civilization. One morning, seventeen days out of Liberia, I finally spotted her smokestacks on the horizon, her downtown silhouette against the enormous mass of the Table Mountains, and in the foreground, Robin Island, where she keeps all of her illegals. They, the Cayman, were talking of getting off here and taking their own chances on the dark continent. I half hoped they would so I could be about my own tale in something like solitude. However, it was not to be. As it turned out, we became separated at a very fortuitous moment. The captain called us to the dining room where he announced the vessel had been accepted for repair by a Cape Town dry docker. We all gave a little cheer, for one tends to identify with something so large as a ship, don't you think? But it would be necessary to abandon ship and go ashore for three or four days while they breamed or bottom or whatever they do, steved or bowsprit, whatever, for our easy steerage. Just as well, I thought. We were to be lodged in private homes. Arrangements had been made through the Ministry of Tourism, and since we were all, save the captain, white and personable, there was no problem. He'd stay on the bridge, I guessed, and eat with the workmen. All were bidden return to stateroom and pack for the stay. What excitement, I said to myself. Here we pulled right up to the long pier and walked down a gangplank. You come in so much higher that way, so much to be preferred to coming in at sea level in a small boat, which is such a bitch. We all carried our gear, so we had to go through customs, but they were very nice. It turns out I was to stay alone with a certain Mr. Smuts and his family, which was fine by me. I just love a family group. He's not, by the way, THE Mr. Smuts, but just another Mr. Smuts. He and his wife and nineteen-year-old daughter lived on the outskirts of town, one of the more fashionable suburbs on the road to Stellenbosch, Africa's Princeton. They have a simply beautiful home overlooking False Bay, just on the other side of the Cape of Good Hope itself. Off to the left is a lovely shot of the Hottentot Holland range of mountains. They, the Smuts, had me met at the dock by a chauffeur, a very sweet young colored named Steve. There he was, standing at the gate with a little hand-lettered sign saying, Farker. I said goodbye to one at all. We agreed to meet somewhere en masse, at an eatery to be chosen at random by dear Nanette. She whispered hastily as I kissed her on the cheek that she would come to me to wait in my rooms. It was the first hint I'd had that I was to have more than one room. She said, Oh, darling, they'll treat you very well. They think you're one of us. I didn't have the nerve to tell them I have no idea who you are. Again, I don't have the foggiest idea what she was talking about. We drove away through the crowded streets that might have been the very streets trod by Mahatma Gandhi himself during his extended stay in this community of souls. But I think he spent most of his time inland on all kinds of minority business. 
There are, in fact, over half a million Indian subcontinentals down here somewhere. It took over half an hour to get out to where they live. Steve didn't talk much. He seemed shy and innocent, qualities I found very charmingly mated in him. We stopped several times so police officers could look into the car to see if I was all right. They had been having, I understand, some industrial disturbances of late, caused no doubt by the disturbing interference of outside agitators slipping liberal notions to workers in battery factories. I found the national police so handsome in their paramilitary get-ups. They'd smile and gesture in my direction. Oh, things were hopping down here with so many people interested in blowing it to smithereens. The Smuts house itself was a sprawling single-story ranch affair with a long driveway crawling up the front lawn. Beautiful jacaranda trees grew on the sheltered side of the house. There was no one in sight when we arrived, save an old gardener trimming some privet hedge. Then Mr. and Mrs. Smuts came out the front and walked toward the limousine as Steve opened the door for me. They seemed fairly friendly. Mr. Smuts and I shook hands. He asked me how I liked the weather in his country. I told him it was a lovely day, and from what I had seen, this part of Africa was one of the fairest to behold. And I only meant the landscape itself. Oh, Mrs. Smuts was handsome, but about the fairest part I know nothing. You never do with that sort of woman. Anyway, he seemed pleased. He was kind of gruff and outgoing. He wore a sports shirt buttoned to the neck and decorated with a string tie. He was hatless, but wore handsome hand-tooled western boots of cowhide. He looked to be fifty-five or so and was graying at the temples. Mrs. Smuts was not graying and wore a pleated skirt over a cotton blouse. That is, the blouse was tucked into a skirt. I hope you don't misunderstand me. Her eyes were light blue pools of purest irrationality. Quite fetching, really. She could trace her relatives to the Indian Wars in the northeast of America. They must play a lot of tennis to have those delicious tans, I thought to myself. And when we walked around to the back of the house, I saw the tennis court. So I was right about that, because I could just see her in a little tennis skirt. The grounds were beautiful and very well kept. There was a small pond in one shaded corner bridged by an arc of stone springbok leaping. They told me it was a miniature of the Oppenheimer Memorial in Johannesburg. It was so precious and poised there in the greenery. The mountains loomed above our heads. Plain trees appeared on the near horizon. Finally, this African landscape drives me mad. I was so relieved when they finally invited me inside for a cup of tea. They seemed like nice enough people, though you can never tell, and I've learned to be wary about this sort of thing. I never put all my cards on the table right away. After I get to know somebody, though, I'm as open as can be. Some say extraordinarily open. I'll show them everything I've got, and breast not knave or deuce. However, this is very seldom necessary. But it always feels so stiff to be thrown into new social situations like this. And this is why manners are so important. They help to carry us over our fear and our ignorance and the possible pain and pleasure this can bring to those around us. 
They told me their daughter Tess was shopping in the city, but would return in time for dinner. We had a pleasant enough cup of tea. I don't think we discussed a thing except the service itself. Oh, you know what I mean. I would say, what a lovely cup. Wherever did you get it? And then she would say, yes, bone china from Holland. We are very proud. And he would say, and cost a pretty penny, too. Things like that. Manners again. They just keep coming up. And they can't teach enough of them in our schools these days. You're never too old and seldom too young to learn a few more, either, and get along with just anybody. That's what I think. Shortly, I was shown to my rooms to await dinner, which was at eight. I lay down on the bed and fell into a deep sleep. While in this sleep, I dreamt of a horrible bull-elephant goring, tusks flashing in the tumult, the rearing, the roar. It was a horror. And to think that they hunt and kill these magnificent beasts and made piano keys out of their teeth. In the Kruger National Park, in the northeast corner of the country, armed gamekeepers scour the jungle in search of poachers, but it's not enough. If I had any, I'd give all my money to the fund to preserve and protect all the great beasts at land, on the sea, and in the air. I awoke at 6.45 in time to shower and dress for dinner. Dinner was very pleasant. Their daughter was there and turned out to be a ravishing, dark-haired, dark-eyed young beauty in a nicely tapered worsted shift, breathing just a hint of bosom. And that small touch of sophistication can be so telling on the tone of an evening. I didn't underestimate it a bit. Her mother was in a short, simple organza gown. We were served by a man and a woman, Africans from the look of them, in dark gray uniforms. Tess was not only beautiful, but also homey and down-to-earth, such a rare combination. And I found myself quite bewitched by her feminine appeal. However, she was not talkative. Neither she nor her mother seemed capable of any but the most basic sort of conversation, such as pass the butter, if you would, and they say a green vegetable is very good for you. But I wasn't bothered at all, nor did I have any negative feelings. Up in my rooms I had taken just a tad of amphetamine, as it always makes me just a little more charming and brings out the lighter side. My doctor prescribed it for me to deal with a minor weight problem I seemed to be having. So I had no trouble at all launching into a conversation with the table at large. The problem was, then, their lack of desire to chat, even if it's only aimless. It seems to be a South African characteristic. They are a serious and no-nonsense people. I heard that more than once down there. And I must say the young Miss Smuts used it to great advantage. I knew right then she could have me eating right out of her hand. We were served a salad first, and then a soup. The salad was crisp and green with a mild herb and cheese, vinegar and oil dressing. The soup seemed a beef stock with added fruits and vegetables. The fruits seemed strange to me in a soup, so I asked Mrs. Smuts about them. She said that it was very difficult to get the native cooks to leave off putting fruit in the soup since it was an element of their tribal cookery. She paused for quite a while, so I went on to tell them how thankful I was that they had taken me in off my broken boat and were bedding me and boarding me so thoughtfully. 
They nodded their heads as if they agreed with every word I was saying. We were served quite a nice dry red wine with our steak. It was grown right in their region, called the Garden Spot of Southern Africa. Everyone continually assured me it was very much a beautiful part of the world. A silence ensued, a previous pause, and my host became uncomfortable. He pushed back his chair and asked if I would like to hear something of how they mined their diamonds down there. He said, We're very proud of our country, you know. Oh, that's nice, I said, though I'll admit I'm not really a nationalism fan. Yes, broke in Mrs. Smuts. It is very much a beautiful part of the world. Really, I said, and then, just to keep things going, added, I'd just love to hear about the diamonds. Tess laughed, and Mrs. Smuts said, Oh, everybody loves the diamonds. We all laughed at this. The conversation was becoming positively animated. You could see Tess hung on every word I said. I said, You bet, and then Mrs. Smuts explained that they were not Cape Towners. We're Johnnies, she explained, from the Transvaal, Johannesburg. Oh, I exclaimed. That's where the diamonds come from. I was wondering about that. Oh, no, Mr. Smuts corrected. Not from there. That's gold country. The diamonds come from Kimberley. Oh, I didn't know that. How interesting. It didn't really matter whether I knew or not. I was just being polite, waiting for the dessert. Watching Tess nod her head, and then I broke in. But how do you know if you're from somewhere else? And then he explained that he had been an engineer in his early career before he got into education and research. But he wasn't deterred at all and began again about the diamonds. Let me tell you about how we get the diamonds out of the ground, Mr. Smuts continued, before we forget and you never find out. He was very persistent about this. I had a feeling he was going to tell me no matter what I said. The table fell silent, and Mr. Smuts began his story. First, we blow up a big stick of dynamite down in the ground, he began. Then we haul this diamond-bearing rock up to the surface. It is just called blue ground now, because of its color. When we bring it up, we bring it right away to the cruncher, where it is reduced to a little particle the size of this pipe bowl. He picked up a handsome meerschaum from off the table. It looked to be about an inch across to me. In this crushing process, most of the diamonds are released, he continued. And now we take the crushed ore to rotary washing pans on giant conveyor belts. The ore enters the washing pan at a tangent. Do you know what that means? He was questioning me to see if I were following his story. Of course I know what a tangent was though I didn't have the vaguest idea what diamonds were doing on one in a washing pan. It could have been a De Beers brochure, for all I knew, but I'm sure he had it by heart. What I mean to say is that it flows into the pan without disturbing the smooth, circular movement within the pan itself, he explained, at just the right angle to the circular flow. It is then carried along by a stream of slime and water called a puddle. This suspension of slime increases the density of the water so that the stream is able to keep the diamonds in motion, but does not allow them to come too near the surface. The upper layers of water continually overflow, but the lower layers, with the diamonds, are removed from time to time through a door in the wall of the rotary pan called an exit. By this process, 99% of the ore is removed. 
This 99% is called the tailings and is dumped in large hills called tailings hills. The remainder is circulated in what is called a separatory cone. The water in this cone is made dense with a powdered iron alloy. The lighter particles again fly off and the diamonds sink. The next step is the grease table. A table is covered with a layer of petroleum jelly, which has an affinity for diamonds. The whole table is vibrated electrically along the line of feed. The dirt moves across the table, but the diamonds stick. The final product is then picked out of the jelly and rubbed by hand. Out of the 10,000 tons of ore which we treat this way every day, we get one pound of stones. He stopped then, and there was a silence at the table. I was awed myself. Just think of it. One pound of stones. But all that work, was it worth it? It meant, if you could get them out of there, you were a very rich man. And then for a moment I wondered why we all didn't do it like crazy. But then I'm sure there would be too many diamonds, and they wouldn't be worth a plugged nickel. And here all the time I thought you just went down in a riverbed and started picking them up by the handful. But from the sober silence that followed, you'd have thought he'd just read Ecclesiastes. Page 787 in my Bible. And what a good book that is. I sincerely believe it to be the very fountainhead of all true popular music. You remember how it goes. I say it's empty. Why work in the sun? Generations come and generations go while the earth seems to endure. The sun rises and the sun goes down, etc. The wind blows south, the wind blows north, round and round it goes and returns full circle. All streams run into the sea, yet the sea never overflows. Back to the place from which it ran, it returns to run again. All things are weary and no one can remember why. And there is nothing new under the sun, etc. He goes on and on, saying... I bothered my mind to understand wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly, and I came to see that this too is chasing the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and the more a man knows, the more he has to suffer. So finally he undertook great works. I built myself houses and planted vineyards. I made myself gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees. I bought slaves, male and female, and I had my home-born slaves as well, etc. You can learn so much from an old book like that. Even those unfortunate enough to be on the outer edges of society can know all about the wealth of Solomon. And there are so many seminal plots in there just ripe for the acquisitive mind to pick off. I broke the silence to say I thought what he had said was quite instructive. Mr. Smuts invited me into the library for a brandy, and the two women disappeared to the upper rooms to watch Dallas on television. Really, it's one of the most popular shows over there. The library was very cleverly decorated with books and such, round globes and framed paintings. He spoke eloquently of his country's problems worldwide. He cupped his glass below his breast and assumed an awesomely solemn face. I, of course, had no interest in what he had to say, but he seemed to want it off his chest. He complained of the United States having cut him off from a certain type of sweet crude, highly prized for its easy fracture into gasoline. He said, It's like a cowboy not knowing how to handle his gun or walk tall anymore. 
I say to you, stop displaying this nervousness. And then I said, naturally enough, oh no, no, don't talk to me. They don't have my ear in Washington. I assumed, of course, that he had intended no direct reference to my behavior at that moment, which, I can assure you, was utterly beyond blemish. I sat up straight in my chair and didn't even cross my legs. He sat down across from me and leaned in toward my face. We have plans afoot to invest in your country, to move our substantial assets into your markets. Well, you needn't ask my permission. I'm sure the rules are all set down somewhere in a paper-backed book or information pamphlet. This was obviously just a case of mistaken identity, I said to myself. But so much social intercourse is these days. He leaned in even closer and said, Our countries are very similar, you know. You might say that when you hurt us, you hurt yourself. For soon, we will be like this. And here he enjoined the fingers of one hand with those of the other and shook them before his face. Then he continued, The question is one of preserving the values of civilization and culture and progress, of not slipping into darkness, as it were. And then something to the effect that if I thought him staunch, I should meet his neighbors. Perhaps he realized how spooky he had become, for he then added in a lighter vein. We have many precious elements here, highly prized metals and stones, strategic ores even, and we have very powerful friends. Oh, I had no idea. And really I didn't. Don't think I was just playing dumb to draw him out. I really was. But nevertheless, we fell into a rather heavy silence here. The fire crackled in its place. I thought of how little I had to say to a man of his complexion. I prefer all my companions to be at least slightly gay. He crossed to the mantel above the fire and briefly studied the spirits in his glass. Then he blurted, You're probably concerned about the black question. For the life of me, at that instant, I could not remember exactly what the black question was in any precise phrasing. But then I realized he was talking about the people down here. I temporized, not wanting to be seen as out of it in any way. I said there are those who question directly, and those who merely pose a question by their continued peaceable existence, or something to that effect. And then, fearing me to be in much the same position as the consortium of international bankers who afford the sticky tape that holds this entire enterprise together, I said, Well, tell me about it. He declined to elaborate on the subject any more than to say, Well, I can't say, and you won't see, but I can assure you we are moving ahead and there will be changes. However, it is extremely important for you people to bear in mind our determination to preserve the sovereignty of our decision-making process. And here he rose to the tips of his toes. Wonderful, I said. I don't think I ever heard that before. I was feeling myself representative of a similar sort of ground-zero position, albeit all too true I held at the time no post of governmental responsibility. After all, he continued calmly, perhaps too calmly, you yourself have said the fact that the details of those changes have not yet crystallized, that we are still in the dark as to what the precise objectives and scope of the changes will be, is not as important as the commitment to change itself. 
I don't remember ever having said anything like that, but then people are always putting words into my mouth. And I'm not exactly incapable of such a pretty piece of sophistry. But then I'd defend a body's right to shout fire even on a crowded escalator. Not that anyone would listen to me. The old fellow seemed to have perturbed himself some, so I allowed him to complete his thought. He said, Well, let me say this. They are all homosexual. Who? I stammered. Where? He must have felt himself on shaky ground, apparently, for he cut off further inquiry by saying, I'll tell you what, let's not discuss anything unpleasant. Well, I know for a fact that what he said couldn't be true because no population is ever more than 51% homosexual at any one time. He went on to say something called Daga, a drug as far as I could tell, was at the root of both adult and juvenile delinquency, as are the knife, the dice, and the dirty girlfriend. He was leaning on the mantel while he gave me these snips from a fuller picture. Then suddenly he took a step toward me and said with some vehemence, You know, we have some very romantic figures working with us too, some rather romantic figures. Don't think a pack of greasy pepperheads can scare us off. You'll see. We are a very resourceful people. I think he was quite off the wall on this one. It seemed totally fruitless to attempt any further conversation. If only he knew how I had been taught, at the tenderest of ages, everything he thought. And to fear is true, a nefarious plot to enslave the world behind a curtain of silence. Thankfully, his daughter proved a more reasonable person when she came knocking at the door to my rooms late that same night. Anyway, I was looking for a chance to escape this smuts fellow when his hand slipped off the mantle, spilling liquor on the hearth rug. While he was on one knee, picking up shards of broken glass in some embarrassment and throwing them into the mighty fire he had glowing behind him, I mumbled some gibberish about all people absolutely equally undergoing and eventually surpassing hardship, excused myself, and went directly to my rooms. So escape I did. A short time later there was a gentle knocking at my door. It was Tess asking if I desired refreshment before I slept. I asked her in and she sat on a straight-backed chair by the writing table. You may think this situation provocative, but in fact it was quite gentle, quite sweet and touching. Eventually she spoke of her great loneliness and desire to see a wider world, perhaps to break into showbiz there being no theatre as such in South Africa. I had told her I was something of a talent scout. She wore a feathery little dressing gown. It was warm down there still, late in their summer. But more of this in its proper place.